Microsoft Edge is sending your images back to Microsoft. A massive Department of Motor Vehicles leak. Google can recognize you without using facial recognition. A big story that we missed last week that we're going to touch on. And several important FOSS updates. Welcome to Surveillance Report 138, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. Henry from TechLore. Okay, this week, our promo segment, same as always, we have Patreon, and we're actually pretty close to 100 patrons. So if you're listening out there and you're like, yeah, you know, I like surveillance support, I want to keep it going, make sure it sticks around, uh, you can sign up on Patreon, help push us a little bit closer to that triple-digit number. If you contribute $5 or more per month, then you get to ask us a question for the Q&A, and if you contribute $10 or more per month, then you get to go straight into the stories. You don't have to listen to any of this promo stuff and you get some additional commentary from us on some of these stories if you want to keep us going in a recurring fashion but you don't want to deal with patreon we have libra pay and if you don't care about any of that stuff and you just want to support us as anonymously as possible we have monero we don't see anything about you but we see the contributions and we thank you for your support in keeping us going i do want to be a quick hype man Real quick, three weeks ago, we put out a video with 6,700 views on surveillance support, and it has 98.5% like-to-dislike ratio. Two weeks ago, we put out a video, 6,100 views, 98% like-to-dislike ratio, and then last week, we put out a video with 3,700 views, 99% like-to-dislike ratio. We have 90 patrons, and we're close to 100. So my point is that like we have so many of you who love this podcast, and we love seeing this, but also I know that we can also get more patrons and help to support this podcast and keep us growing as well. So 10 people and we can hit 100. So Henry the Hype Man is is here and out. <laughs> and for the record, we know not everybody has disposable income. You know, if, if that's not you, we understand. But if you do have a little disposable income, you know, help keep us going. Help keep this information accessible for everyone. All right, so this story it definitely has made the rounds a lot. So Microsoft Edge, Microsoft's browser, is supposedly sending images you view online to Microsoft. And here's how to disable that. So let's go through the feature, what happened, and why this is happening. It's frustrating. So Edge has a built-in image enhancement tool that, according to Microsoft, can use super resolution to improve clarity, sharpness, lighting, and contrast in images on the web. The browser now warns that it sends image links to Microsoft instead of performing on-device enhancements. So just just to outline here, I don't believe this has been something that has been submitting data to Microsoft without your knowledge, but it now warns you that it will from here on out without doing on-device enhancements. The bigger problem here, though, is Edge's super resolution and other questionable services is that it's enabled by default. So users who are unaware are using this automatically and give the browser permission to send their photos to Microsoft for processing and enhancement. Now, most people probably aren't uploading their own images and having those super resolutionized, but every image that you view online, if it's being super resolutionized, can be collected by Microsoft. Theoretically, there could be a way to tie browsing traffic to to individual users, which I think is the real concern here. So upcoming Edge updates will allow you to pick a more balanced way and specify what websites Edge should not process. There are instructions for both of these in the article. So for those of you who use Edge for whatever reason that may be, make sure to go down in the description, check out the sources, and see how to disable that. And here's a final quote here. Microsoft Edge Privacy White Paper explains that the image enhancement feature encrypts the images before sending their URLs to Microsoft servers for processing without including user identifiers, end quote. 
With that, we'll launch into our data breaches section. We're starting with Have I Been Pwned? Warning of a new Zaxx data breach impacting 8 million. The firm, that is Zaxx, previously disclosed a data breach that occurred between November 2021 and August 2022, warning that unauthorized network intruders access the personal and sensitive information of about 820,000 customers. However, data breach notification service Have I Been Pwned listed an additional breach this weekend after being sent a database containing 8.8 million user records. Have I Been Pwned's creator Troy Hunt told Bleeping Computer that this data database appears to have been dumped around May 10th, 2020, before the previous breach at Zach's. Hunt told Bleeping Computer that the database contains Zach's customers' emails, addresses, email addresses, usernames, unsalted SHA-256 passwords, addresses, phone numbers, first and last names, and quote-unquote other data. Financial information like credit card and bank account details are not included in this dump, and it is, does not appear the attackers access this type of data. Unfortunately, Zach's had previously initiated a password reset procedure for the breach disclosed in January, but it can be assumed that the remaining 90% of breached accounts that weren't identified as such were not included in the measure, leaving them exposed to account hijacking, credential stuffing, and sim swapping. A massive vaccine database leak exposes IDs of millions of Indians. On the evening of June 11th, a journalist from the Kerala-based news portal The Fourth reported that a Telegram bot in a channel called Hack4Learn was offering access to the private data of millions of Indians. All a user had to do was put in a phone number or their Indian national ID number, and it would return details including their name, passport number, and date of birth. The data appears to have come from India's COWIN vaccination tracking application, which has more than 1 billion registered users. That's insane. Conservative estimates mean at least personal data of several hundred million users was exposed. The bot was shut down as of June 12th, but experts warn that doesn't mean the breach is over as the owner of the data can find other outlets. UK communications regulator Ofcom says that cybercriminals stole confidential data. The attackers responsible for the Move It cyber attack downloaded confidential information from the UK communications regulator about companies it regulates as well as its own employees, adding to a string of victims, which include IAGSA's British Airways and the British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC. A limited amount of information about certain companies we regulate, some of it confidential, along with the personal data of 412 Ofcom employees, was downloaded during the attack. We took immediate action to prevent further use of the Move It service and to implement the recommended security measures. We also swiftly alerted all affected Ofcom regulators companies and we continue to offer support and assistance to our colleagues. The article was paywalled, so that's kind of all the information we have. Residia ransomware leaks documents stolen from Chilean army. So Threat actors behind a recently surfaced ransomware attack known as Residia have leaked online what they claim to be documents stolen from the network of the Chilean army. The leak comes after the army confirmed on May 29th that its systems were impacted in a security incident detected over the weekend on May 27th. Days after the attack was disclosed, local media reported that an army corporal was arrested and charged for his involvement in the ransomware attack. Residia ransomware published around 360,000 army documents, and according to them, it's only 30%. Uh, The Residia ransomware gang describes itself as a cybersecurity team that aims to help victims secure their networks. The article did not specify the nature of the documents. With that, we'll move on to the big DMV data breach, which is also the result of MoveIt. Says millions of Oregon and Louisiana state IDs stolen in MoveIt breach. The Louisiana Office of Motor Vehicles announced yesterday that they believe all Louisianians with a state-issued driver's license ID or car registration likely had their data exposed to the threat actors. This included name, address, social security number, date of birth, height, eye color, driver's license number, vehicle registration information, and handicap placard info. However, the agency says there is no indication that Klopp used, sold, shared, or released any of that data, so the stolen data may have been deleted as the ransomware actors promised in their announcement to delete any stolen government data. 
Nonetheless, millions living in Louisiana should still consider their data at risk. They are advised to take appropriate steps to protect their identity, reset their passwords, place a freeze on their bank accounts, and report any suspicious activities to the authorities and their card issuers. The Oregon DMV released a similar statement and a press release explaining that its move at transfer data breach impacted approximately 3.5 million Oregonians with an ID or driver's license. The authorities have stated that they are in no position to identify specific victims, so all citizens are advised to take precautions and assume their personal data was exposed. The article did not specify what data came from Oregon, but it's probably safe to just assume anything you would find on your driver's license or like Louisiana, any like car registration, anything that's related. And the last data breach is actually from System76, which you might know as a major Linux laptop computer manufacturer. So major thanks to the listener who tipped us off. If you have any more credible stories for any of you listening, send them to surveillance report at protonmail.com. You can find that actually nowhere. This was an email sent to some System76 account holders stating an incident in March. According to the email, some customer data was visible in page source code on system76.com pages, but they didn't specify what except to say it was not credentials. So here are some technical details. One of the technologies that they use on their website is server-side rendering with Nuxt. Several years ago, a caching layer was implemented so that the server-side rendering wouldn't have to use their backend API every time it needed the same information. It worked fine, but front-end technologies shifted and the way it was implemented became outdated. Last year, their team made an update to seemingly unrelated piece of code to fix a deprecation message, no less. However, this exposed the initial implementation of this cache to a new style of handling state which it had not been written for and was not prepared to handle. So what happened was the following. State that shouldn't have been shared and was shared between sessions. This is one of the major pitfalls of using server-side rendering in a web application. Unlike an API, the code in an SSR app doesn't always have distinct boundaries between what happens on a single client versus what happens on the server. So that's kind of the technical explanation that was provided. They have promised a number of fixes to prevent this again, including both automated and manual scans, and a planned move to a static model for their website to reduce the risk of similar mistakes. Uh, I think Nate just said if you know you might upload a screenshot of this for people who are contacted regarding this. But aside from that, we don't really have any formal sources. And actually, just a quick update. I I was wrong. I wrote in the notes here that they didn't say what data was exposed. What was potentially exposed? Names, physical addresses, email addresses, and phone numbers. All right, with that, we'll move into companies. And this is an interesting story. The headline says, Google confirms photos can now, quote unquote, facially recognize you from behind. She says, since we started traveling more frequently, I found myself snapping pictures of my husband walking, hiking, or standing in different environments. Just, you know, those typical travel photos you see all over. However, those photos were never recognized by Google Photos as pictures of him. Actually, photos never detected a face there because, well, there is no face and hence didn't let me manually tag those pictures. Today, however, I was surprised to see that a lot of these pics are now showing up under his face profile in Google Photos. The app is now clearly detecting the back of his head and even more surprisingly, properly tagging him. How? We reached out to Google and were told that machine learning models have been improved to group people, quote here, group people based on clothing and other visual cues across the photos taken within a similar time frame. unquote. So because I've taken snaps or videos of my husband's face in the same place around the same time wearing the same clothes, Google Photos is now able to detect him in other pictures where his face isn't visible, like from the back. However, the tag here appears a little differently than regular facially recognized pics. It shows with the notice of face available to add, even though a specific face is already recognized. So Google seems to be hedging its bets, doing the work, but still signaling that it might not be 100% right. You can tap to change the person tagged if it's wrong uh, if it's wrong, or remove the tag altogether. This is mostly due to clothing and time span. It remains to be seen if you can fool it by exchanging clothes with someone else. 
Next one is really quick, and I don't know, there's not much to cover here, but it's a good FYI. So iOS 17 gives you 72 hours, three days, to undo an iPhone passcode change. So if you entered an incorrect password, typing on forget password at the bottom of the screen will lead to another screen with a try passcode reset option. Tapping this option allows you to enter the iPhone's previous passcode and create a new passcode within that 72 hour window, of course. So what they say is as a safeguard, an option in the settings app lets you expire the previous passcode immediately so that it cannot be used to reset the new passcode. So you still have the option to not have this feature. Okay, and our last company story is a quick one from Windows. Windows 11 Win32 app isolation security feature is now in preview. So Win32 app isolation uses app container to boost security by mitigating the potential harm caused by compromised applications and protecting the user's privacy. It also ensures that apps are running with low privilege and implements the principle of least privilege to prevent unauthorized access to the user's information without first asking for consent. This prevents malicious apps from seizing control of the entire system, providing an additional layer of defense and safeguarding the system against potential compromise attempts. And now we're gonna go into the research section. So the first one is a fun one. So a security expert has defeated Lenovo laptop BIOS passwords with a screwdriver. So a little context, you can set a password to access your BIOS in order to protect certain things on your device and protect features that might allow people to work around your BIOS or your operating system or whatever. New Zealand-based cybersecurity experts at CyberCX have detailed and demonstrated an alarmingly simple way to consistently access older BIOS-locked laptops. In the linked blog post and video demo, an exec at the firm detailed how to short some of the chip pins with a, sing with a simple screwdriver to access a fully unlocked BIOS. Then all it took was a quick poke around the BIOS settings screen to disable any BIOS password altogether. It's worth pointing out that this bypass demonstration was done on several Lenovo laptops that it had retired from service. The blog shows that the easily reproducible bypass is viable on the Lenovo ThinkPad L440, which launched in quarter four of 2013, and the Lenovo ThinkPad X230, which launched in, which launched in 2012. Other laptop and desktop models and brands that have a separate chip where passwords are stored may be similarly vulnerable. So shorting these chip pins requires something as simple as a screwdriver tip being held between two of the chip legs. Then once you enter the BIOS, you should find that all the configuration options are open to being changed. There is said to be some timing that's required to do this, but the timing isn't super tight. So there is some latitude. You can even watch the video to see what some of the technique is for educational purposes. CyberCX says that the most modern machines with the BIOS and the EEPR ROM, EEP ROM packages, which is the name of the chip in one Surface Mount D SMD, would be more difficult to hack in this way, requiring an off-chip attack. The cybersecurity firm also said that some motherboard and system makers do indeed already use an integrated SMD. Those particularly worried about their data rather than their system should implement full disk encryption to prevent an attacker from obtaining data from the laptop's drive. Our next bit of research says SMS delivery reports can be used to infer recipient's location. I'm going to quote a bit of the article here. A team of university researchers has devised a new side channel attack named Freaky Leaky SMS, which relies on the timing of SMS delivery reports to deduce a recipient's location. SMS delivery reports are handled by the SMSC, Short Message Service Center, of the mobile network to inform when a message has been delivered, accepted, failed, is undeliverable, has expired, or has been rejected. While there are routing, network node propagation, and processing delays in this process, mobile networks' fixed nature and specific physical characteristics result in predictable times when standard signal pathways are followed. The researchers developed a machine learning algorithm that analyzes timing data in these SMS responses to find the recipient 
recipient's location at an accuracy of up to 96% for locations across different countries and up to 86% for two locations in the same country. The attacker will first have to collect some measurement data to make concrete correlations between the SMS delivery reports and the known locations of their targets. The more precise data the attacker has about their target's whereabouts, the more accurate the location classification results in the machine learning model's predictions will be in the attack phase. To collect the data, the attacker must send multiple SMS to the target, either masking them as marketing messages that the recipient will ignore or disregard as spam, or using silent SMS messages. Silent SMS is a type zero message with no content, which produces no notifications on the target screen, yet its reception is still acknowledged by the device on the SMSC. So there's there's a full breakdown in the article of their exact methodology, how they set this up, how they, um, you know, what the results were. But skipping all the way down to the very end, it says, although the attack involves tedious preparatory work, isn't trivial to carry out, does not work well under all circumstances, and has several practical limitations, it still constitutes a potential privacy risk for users. My first thought was, and I could be wrong about this one, but I feel like this is a good argument for not using SIM numbers if you're able to, to use like voice over IP instead. I don't think it That would be my first thought is like, no. What's up? I don't think it'd work because uh, with a with a VoIP service, they're going to be handling the SMS on their server end, and they're going to be supplying it to you via their own. So there's there's a middleman here, and all they're going to be able to see is the time it would take to hit like Google servers if you're using Google Voice or MySudo servers if you're using MySudo. So it wouldn't work on the attacker's end. Like they wouldn't be able to trace you this way. No, the same no, way. because because it, the, this is dependent on these messages arriving to you and where you are at. Whereas with something like MySudo, they're the ones handling the actual SMS protocol. And they're just delivering they just push it that to you. to you via the web. So Okay, so yeah, yeah then that, that would be a good defense there. If you are in an area where you can get voice over IP, then that would be a good defense here. RDP Honeypot targeted three and a half million times in brute force attacks. So this is a remote desktop connection software. So remote desktop connections are so powerful, a magnet for hackers that an exposed connection can average more than 37,000 attacks every day from various IP addresses. During this phase, the attacks are automated, but once they get the right access credentials, the hackers start searching for important or sensitive files manually. This was a three-month window of data. The whole year totaled 13 million login attempts, and the article lists some common username attempts. Lots of other interesting patterns and stats, but this is just a good reminder of how crucial metadata can be and how just having the encryption and the end-to-end encryption that we normally talk about is enough for certain things, but maybe not for everything. All right, with that, we'll jump into politics. And we're going to, um, this is kind of an older story. We saw this story last week, but somehow it slipped both of our minds to put it in the show notes. So we're just going to go ahead and catch up on it real quick here. This article says, criminalization of encryption, the 8 December case. This happened in December of 2020. The important thing to note here is that this concerns a case in France where some people were arrested, not because of all this privacy stuff we're about to talk about, but this privacy stuff is being used as evidence quote unquote evidence to paint them as suspicious and they have something to hide. Quoting the article, this article was written on the basis of information relating to the so-called 8 December case in which seven people were indicted for quote, association of terrorist criminals in December of 2020. Their trial is scheduled for October of 2023. This will be the first counter-terrorist trial targeting the ultra-left since the fiasco of the Tarnak case. I don't know what that is for the record. I apologize. The charge of terrorism has been roundly rejected by the defendants. The defendants denounce a political trial, an incriminating investigation, and a lack of evidence. In particular, they point to decontextualized statements and the use of trivial facts, such as sports and digital activities, reading and listening to music, etc., as evidence against them. 
All members contacted adopted a clandestine behavior with increased security of means of communication, such as encrypted applications, Tails operating system, Tor protocol enabling anonymous browsing on the internet, and public Wi-Fi. That came from the general director for internal security. And then the investigating judge said all members of this group were particularly suspicious, only communicating with each other using encrypted applications, in particular signal, and encrypting their computers and devices. This outlet, La, La Quadrature de Net has been alerted to the fact that in the context of the 8 December case, not only the use of encrypted communications, uh, excuse me, communications encryption tools, such as WhatsApp, Signal, ProtonMail, Silence, etc., but also the possession of technical documentation and the organization of digital hygiene training courses are being used to quote-unquote demonstrate a so-called clandestine behavior that can only be explained by the terrorist nature of the group. Here are just some of the practices that are being misused as evidence of terrorist behavior. The use of applications such as Signal, WhatsApp, Wire, Silence, or ProtonMail to encrypt communications. Using internet privacy tools such as VPNs, Tor, or Tails, protecting ourselves against the exploitation of our personal data via services such as EOS, LineageOS, and FDroid, encrypting digital media, organizing and participating in digital hygiene training sessions, and simple possession of technical documents. And then the last quote here is, the emphasis put on encryption offers another advantage to the police narrative building objective. It is used as an alibi to explain the lack of evidence of a supposed terrorist plot. The police thus justifies the evidence exists, but it cannot be deciphered. How convenient. So yeah, this is turning into a really huge case. It it was big news last week. I'm sorry that we missed it, but in case anyone else has missed it, this is something we'll be keeping our eye on, and it's really unfortunate. Well, on the positive news front, EU votes to ban AI in biometric surveillance, requires disclosure from AI systems. So the updated draft of the AI Act law includes a ban on the use of AI in biometric surveillance and requires systems like OpenAI's ChatGPT to reveal when content has been generated by AI. While the draft is still non-binding, it gives a strong indication of how EU regulators are thinking about AI. The new changes to the European Commission's proposed law, which have not yet been finalized, intend to shield EU citizens from potential threats linked to machine learning technology. Our next headline says, You're owed money from a Google class action lawsuit settlement. The article says, If you Googled anything between 2006 and 2013, then Google owes you money for violating your privacy. Those are the terms of a class action lawsuit that Google has settled for $23 million. The current estimated payout is about $7.70 per person. Of course, that number could go up or down before it's all over. If fewer people than expected file claims, the payout will go up. But if more people than expected file claims, the amount will go down because more people are sharing the settlement money. The deadline to file a claim is July 31st. Instructions are in the article for those who care. It's unclear if this suit applies only to residents of Washington state because this is a Washington-based outlet, or if it's all U.S. residents, the article didn't really specify, but I'm sure there's more details on the website. So The final thing is a little bit more slightly positive news. Ohio Senate has moved to criminalize secretly tracking people with air tags and similar devices and apps. So violators could be charged with a new first-degree misdemeanor offense of the illegal use of a device or application, resulting in up to 180 days in jail. If the individual holds a prior conviction of menacing by stalking, the charge could escalate to a fourth-degree felony, resulting in 6 to 18 months in jail. And with that, we'll move into the free and open source section. Um, There's nothing super explosive in here, but there is a lot of interesting updates. So we'll start with probably the biggest one is Debian 12 has been released. This one is codenamed Bookworm. So there's a, a ton of updates. The article we linked actually lists all of the things that are new. It's mostly just, you know, 
updating to newer packages by default, which I like Debian as much as the next guy, but let's be real, that's something they tend to struggle with. So newer packages, some new desktop environments, there's some new languages that they support. They now include support for Secure Boot, which is super awesome. There's support for nine architectures and several popular cloud computing services like AWS. And uh, yeah, again, there's way more details in the link. And I know I keep mentioning them, but the Linux experiment did a whole video, I think last week about Debian 12. So it should be pretty easy to find at this point in time. Check those out if you want to know more. All right, next one, they took a page from Mulvad and they didn't even include what the service is in the headline. It is Proton. Proton, this is about Proton. So the headline is, we are changing the price for monthly unlimited plan subscriptions. Proton Pass premium features will soon be included in the Proton Unlimited plan, together with the premium features of their encrypted cloud storage, email calendar, and VPN services. They believe this significantly adds to the plan's value. At the same time, Proton is also contending with higher costs, particularly much higher server and electricity costs impacting their data centers in Switzerland. They said, for these reasons, we're changing the price for new Proton Unlimited monthly subscribers from $11.99 a month to $12.99 a month, effective July 1st, 2023. It's important to note that there is no price increase for one-year or two-year Proton Unlimited subscriptions. Furthermore, there will be no price increase for existing subscribers to the one-month unlimited plan. So the next story comes from Fdroid, who is releasing a progressive web app client. We've created a prototype of a progressive web app for browsing F-Droid repositories. It's built with Flutter, which is really good for working in rapid development cycles. It also allows us to make it look and feel like a modern Android app. As a trade-off, the web app is pretty big in size, so depending on your internet connection speed, loading it for the first time might take a while. Flutter is also notorious for trying to connect to Google services, and we couldn't figure out how to make the app GDPR compliant just yet, so be aware of that. Since it's just an early prototype, it's nowhere near as complete as our official Android app. Right now, it only has some of the most basic features, displaying basic repo information, providing a link or QR code for adding the repo to your client, browsing and searching for apps, displaying app details, and app downloads. F-Droid repositories themselves are deployed like websites, so naturally it's possible to display, deploy this web app into any F-Droid repo and instantly make it browsable on the web. We're considering adding an option for deploying it automatically to our tools for managing F-Droid repositories. The tooling that runs the F-Droid community can easily be applied to other platforms like iOS. Our team came up with an experimental solution for shipping iOS apps using F-Droid repos, so our new PWA opens up an opportunity to explore how F-Droid could offer a tiny taste of freedom to iOS users. While we hope to aid the expansion of free software everywhere, even on proprietary platforms like iOS, F-Droid will only ship on platforms that can be free software like Android. Next one is from JMP, which is a very, it's, it's kind of like a VOI service it's, it's it's an interesting service but hopefully you know this story will kind of make it obvious so jmp has been in beta for over six years and today they're finally launching they've made improvements to billing phone network compatibility and also helped develop the chiogram android app which provides a smooth onboarding process good android integration and phone like ux for users of that platform there's still a long road ahead of them but with so much behind them they're comfortable saying jmp is ready for launch and that they know they can continue to work with their customers and community for even better things in the future so pretty much the new monthly price for a customer's first JMP phone number is now $4.99 USD per month, but they're running a sale so that all customers will continue to pay beta pricing of $2.99 until the end of August. They're extending until that time the option for anyone who wishes to prepay for up to three years and they can lock in beta pricing. After August, all accounts who have not prepaid will be put on the new plan with the new pricing. Those who do prepay won't see their price increase until the end of the period they prepaid for, and the new plan will also include a multi-line discount, so second, third, etc. JMP phone numbers will be $245 USD a month when they are set to all bill from the same balance. The new plan will also finally have zero-rated toll-free calling. All other costs remain the same. 
All right, and our last Foss story is a really quick one. There's a new release of Tails, version 5.14. Some pretty exciting stuff here. They've automatically migrated from Lux 1 encryption to Argon 2 ID. You can now do full backups if you use Tails with persistence. You can do full backups from the Tails installer. They have a captive portal detection. So if you're on like a public Wi-Fi and you need to agree to the terms of service first, it'll detect that, pop it up in like the, what do they call it? The un- unsecured browser or whatever that goes outside Tor. They'll pop it up there so you can go ahead and agree and then get back to using Tor. And they have added an incentive to donate from Electrum. Since Electrum ships by default, it basically just like makes it easier to donate with Bitcoin and keep them going. So pretty cool stuff. Awesome to see. And the last article is called Identifying. Well, this is the Misfits, by the way. It's called Identifying the Idaho Killer. So the New York Times has a long article on the investigative techniques used to identify the person who stabbed and killed four University of Idaho students. Now, pay attention to the techniques, which is why this is even in surveillance support in the first place. The case has shown the degree to which law enforcement investigators have come to rely on the digital footprints that ordinary Americans leave in nearly every facet of their lives. Online shopping, car sales, carrying a cell phone, drives along city streets, and amateur genealogy all played roles in an investigation that was solved. In the end, as much through technology as traditional sleuthing. It's it's he's kind of cutting pieces from the New York Times article. This came from Bruce Schneider. Okay, Bruce Schneider. At that point, investigators decided to try genetic genealogy, a method that until now has been used primarily to solve old cases, not active murder investigations. Among the growing number of genealogy websites that help people trace their ancestors and relatives via their own DNA, some allow users to select an option that permits law enforcement to compare crime scene DNA samples against the website's data. A distant cousin who has opted into the system can help investigators building a family tree from crime scene DNA to triangulate and identify a potential perpetrator of a crime. On December 23rd, investigators sought and received Mr. Koberger's? I think so. Yes, Mr. Koberger's cell phone records. The results added more to their suspicions. His phone was moving around in the early morning hours of November 13th, but was disconnected from cell networks, perhaps turned off in the two hours around when the killings occurred. Okay, with that, we'll move into the Q&A, or we would move into the Q&A, but nobody asked any questions this week. So if you have a burning question, you're just dying to ask us no pun intended with that last story um you know we answered a question last week about like what we majored in in college and how how we started doing surveillance report and stuff like that so for the most part no questions are off limits please don't challenge that because there are some that i'm sure are but yeah if you guys want to ask us a question five dollars a month feel free two Um, birds with one stone you get us closer to 100 patrons and hit that awesome milestone and you get to ask us a question hype man henry's excited (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wish we could figure out who the 100th patron was and then we could like prioritize their question. I mean, we can use an, the we honor could, system. Like if you're like the 100th patron, we'll we'll give you a, a virtual hug. <laughs> a virtual hug. <laughs> we'll use the trust system for this virtual hug. That's how, that's how much we love all of you. <laughs> <laughs> but in lieu of questions, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. I know we get a little long on those questions sometimes. So this will probably be a shorter week because we don't have those. So we talked about Edge sending your images back to Microsoft. Got to be aware of that. Massive DMV leak. Leaks, as always, every single week, almost. So be sure to protect yourselves. 
Google can recognize you without a face. Technology is advancing heavily. We updated you on that whole December 8th case, and we'll continue to update you if we hear any more about that, as well as FOSS updates. We bring those to you every single week as we have them. So I already harped on Patreon, so I'm not going to harp on that anymore. But again, if you aren't into Patreon, totally get it. There's LibrePay. It's recurring, so you don't have to think about it if you just want something to set and forget. And if you want maximum privacy, we, of course, have Monero. Every little bit helps. Thank you guys so much. We appreciate all your support in keeping us going. Yeah, just so you guys know, like I work a full-time job. Henry's got other stuff going on. That's where the support goes, especially the new oil side of things. We don't make a whole lot of money. This is stuff that helps us become less dependent, at least helps me become less dependent on day jobs, dedicate more time and energy to this. So yeah. And we do Um, have plans that we want to expand surveillance support a little bit too. So yeah, Yeah. we were actually talking about that before recording. We would like to, uh, I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but we would like to expand things and bring you guys more stuff. And that's going to take time. That's going to take energy. That's going to take, you know, software, all these things that yeah. <laughs> software resources, leading edge, proprietary <laughs> surveillance reports, software. I'm, I'm kidding. Yes. It's, it's, we're going to make our own OS. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Just in case I keep that in. I'm kidding. <laughs> Anyways, thank you guys for listening to the Surveillance Report. As always, the final thing we want to ask of you, share the podcast around, especially if there's a particular story you know somebody would be into. Go ahead and timestamp that. Send it to them. Be like, hey, man, check this out. Make sure you are subscribed so you keep getting updates. Give us a rating if you're on a platform where that's an option. Go ahead and leave a comment. We are trying to reach as many people as possible, and everything you do helps, You know, especially if you're on a platform with an algorithm helps those realize that people like this content and shares it with more people. We're trying to reach as many people as possible with privacy and you can help us do that. So thank you again for listening and we'll see you next week.